For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems things like hard starts rough performance and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup sea foam can help your engine run better and last longer simply pour a can in your gas tank hunters and anglers rely on sea foam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to SteelDealers.com. Now... Here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. A couple in Georgia were recently cited for keeping a whitetail fawn as a pet. They weren't trying to hide the fawn. It seems that Georgia wildlife officials learned of the pair when they received a call from the local Walmart. Employees reported a woman carrying a fawn through the store as she and her partner purchased dog food and milk. Not a thing surprises me about a whitetail fawn being toted around like a teacup poodle through Walmart. What surprises me is that the Walmart wasn't located in Florida. This week, we've got landlocked, Mexican wolves, politics, and pits, plus so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week was great. Well, I mean, if I'm being honest, strikes and gutters. Met up with my sisters, a couple of them anyway. Ma, stepdad, niece, nephew, seven dogs in total. Friday through Monday, the sun shone about eight hours and the rain was consistent. Not crazy erosion-causing downpour-type rain, but a long, drawn-out drizzle with a few hours here and there to remind us what an awning, tarp, rain jacket hood sound like without the patter of rain. This was the first voyage of the Black Series HQ-12 camper I'm testing out. I broke a couple of things that I later fixed. I used the toilet, which I was very anxious about. I ran the heater, dried everything out, slept like a rock. The camper windows have insulated shades that act as blackout curtains, making for a real time warp situation. This camper is not big, but we had plenty of room for my girlfriend and I, Snort and Trace Atkins. That's the girlfriend's border collie who prefers to sleep on the top bunk in order to keep track of everyone from an elevated position. The reason that I'm anxious about the pooper in the camper is that I'm very comfortable pooping outside. But in this particular situation, we had 10 pooping campers in one location. 
And if you think about the amount of waste three or four full days of camping creates in one spot from 10 pooping people, it's a lot. And that is what convinced me to, you know, have to learn about how to flush an RV black tank, which, you know, I just didn't think I'd be a part of. But it's a heck of an opportunity to try out something new, and it's pretty darn fun. Great outdoor kitchen, by the way. In regards to the space of this unit, at the end of the trip, we had my brother-in-law and sister over for a board game, and we all fit pretty darn comfortably. Ended the long weekend at 50% of the battery power, which for no sunshine on the solar system must be pretty good, right? All right, that's enough camper talk. Uh, We caught some fish, but the river was pumping, a little too hard for the kids to have much luck. We pounded the ground looking for mushrooms, but that river bottom we were in was much too cold. Ended the weekend with a lot of cribbage played, no phones or computers looked at, a small pile of old shed antlers and some kids with new confidence in their ability to play in the rain. Then, on the way home, really when exiting camp, my Toyota went into limp mode and I had to limp on back to Los Angeles at a max speed of 40 miles per hour on Memorial Day. Plenty of time to thank and appreciate the green grass and the lack of traffic on a typically busy weekend. And here's my gripe with this truck. I have known that an issue exists with this vehicle for three years. And I have had it in to multiple shops, getting things tinkered with or replaced to the tune of several thousand dollars. But the actual issue that I was going in for was never addressed. Had multiple people offer to fully replace the transmission which is not an issue because the computer in the vehicle couldn't cough up the code to tell the mechanics what to do. So despite my being proactive on the maintenance and my certainty that the issue existed with airflow or fuel, I still had to wait until the truck put us in a precarious and very inconvenient position. I shake my head at modern technology. And speaking of head shaking, Remember that United Property Owners of Montana lawsuit we talked about last week? Well, UPOM is suing Montana Fish and Game on the grounds that fish and game laws such as seasons and harvest limits are a violation of the state constitution. Well, several conservation groups filed an intervening lawsuit, which basically says that the decision that is to be made affects much more than those represented by UPOM, which are very, very few. And we, the hunting and fishing and property-owning public outside of UPOM, need to be represented as well. If you're interested in learning more or contributing to the legal fund, go to keepelkpublic.org. That's keepelkpublic.org. Moving on to the public lands desk. It would be an understatement to say that the outdoor community has been concerned about landlocked public land. Led by the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership and Onyx Maps, hunters and anglers have been asking the federal government to unlock those public acres and make them accessible to everyone who loves the great outdoors. Now, it looks like the Bureau of Land Management is doing just that. The BLM recently announced that they have launched an online portal where the public can tell the agency about landlocked parcels in their area. As a quick reminder, the term landlocked describes land that is owned by the public but cannot be legally accessed. This includes land that is surrounded by private acres and land that is in a checkerboard pattern alongside private parcels. According to the TRCP, there are about 16 million acres of landlocked land in the U.S. To identify these parcels and help the public access them, 
Congress passed in 2019 the John D. Dingle Jr. Conservation Management and Recreation Act. This act requires the BLM to seek the public's help in identifying landlocked land, and the public responded. In 2020, which if you recall was when everyone was distracted with a little thing called COVID-19, the BLM received a whopping 6,000 responses. At that point, the only way to submit a request was via old-fashioned paper and snail mail. Now, the agency is making it even easier. On May 23rd, they opened an online portal where anyone can nominate landlocked parcels for consideration. The parcels must be at least 640 acres or one section, must consist entirely of BLM land, and must be at least partially inaccessible to the public. The BLM will review those nominations over the next year and submit a list of the top candidates to Congress. They'll select parcels based in part on the likelihood of resolving the access issue, and selected parcels could be opened up via easements, rights of way, or sales from willing owners. I encourage you to check out the portal for yourself. It uses an interactive map, which makes the nomination process even easier. BLM land is highlighted in yellow, and you can see the plots that have already been nominated in blue. The URL is too long to read on air, but we'll include a link in the episode description. If you have a piece of land in mind, don't sit around twiddling your thumbs. The portal will close on June 30th, and you'll have to wait until next year when it opens back up. Now, I'll tell you right now, going through the Land Access Initiative, the Meat Eater Land Access Initiative website, we have had a lot of submissions that link back to these situations. Listeners, you are aware of them. Please go to the BLM website and submit those parcels that you referenced and sent to me to the BLM. Let's work on this together. It's a great resource. Let's make it happen. Moving on to the Wolf Desk. Protectionist groups are up in arms over new proposed changes to how the federal government manages the Mexican gray wolf population in southern Arizona and New Mexico. As per usual with wolf issues, there's been lots of misinformation floating around, and don't worry, we'll get to all that fun stuff in a minute. But first, you should know a little more about the history of these wolves and their recovery in the U.S. The Mexican gray wolf is a subspecies of wolf whose historical range ran from the southwestern U.S. borderlands through central Mexico. In the early 20th century, the U.S. government more or less wiped out this smaller cousin of the gray wolf and the subspecies was listed under the Endangered Species Act in 1976. Between 1977 and 1980, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service started a captive breeding program with seven individuals. All Mexican gray wolves alive today are descended from those seven wolves. Fast forward to 1998, when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service placed 11 Mexican gray wolves in the wild in southern Arizona and New Mexico. Today, there are about 196 of these wolves in the U.S., which is about twice as many wolves as live in Yellowstone National Park. Which, you know, begs the question, why is everybody so wrapped up about wolves in Yellowstone National Park? We'll get to that later, too. The population has been growing on its own, but biologists have been improving the genetic diversity of this small wild population through a technique called cross-fostering. Cross-fostering is when wolf pups are born in captivity and then placed with a mother in the wild who already has a litter of the same age. Believe it or not, the mother doesn't seem to notice when she suddenly has six pups instead of four. Biologists approach the den, and when the mother leaves, they gather all the pups, both wild and otherwise, on a tarp. 
They mix them together and rub them with dirt and leaves. If one of the pups urinates, they make sure all of them get a spritz. A little fragrance de canade, if you will. Then, they return the pups to the den. When the mother comes back, she's none the wiser. Either that, or Mexican gray wolf mothers are charitable animals and don't mind taking in a few strays. We don't really know. This brings us to the current controversy. For reasons that remain unclear, protectionist groups are unhappy with cross-fostering. Instead of inserting pups into dens, the Center for Biological Diversity wants the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to release entire family units of captive-raised Mexican gray wolves onto the landscape. They think this will increase the population more quickly and lead to greater genetic diversity. Because as we all know, animals raised in cages do great in the wild, especially when they're just kicked out on the side of the road. The Center for Biological Diversity was unhappy when the United States Fish and Wildlife Service did not commit to this strategy in their new proposals. There's only one problem. Actually, a bunch of problems, according to Jim Heffelfinger. Heffelfinger is the wildlife science coordinator at the Arizona Game and Fish Department, and he's been intimately involved in this recovery project. There's some protectionist groups that don't like the recovery plan because they wanted to see unlimited number of wolves in every place a wolf ever was, and they don't care at all about impacts to ungulate populations or to stakeholders that live and work on the ground. If these groups think introducing captive adult wolves will accomplish this goal, I have bad news for them. Biologists have tried it, and eight of the last nine adults they've released from captivity failed to contribute anything to the gene pool. The one wolf that did was already pregnant, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had to bring her back in because her mate abandoned her. Captive wolves have been habituated to people, so they get in more trouble than wild wolves. This understandably ticks off ranchers and reduces support for the wolf recovery program. The last thing we need, if we're concerned about stakeholders and we're concerned about tolerance of wolves in the landscape, the last thing we need is to throw open the zoo gates and release a whole bunch of habituated zoo animals out onto the landscape. On the other hand, biologists have shown that cross-fostering works. They select pups that will be most beneficial to the gene pool, and so far, 13 of the pups they've placed have reached breeding age. What's more, once they stopped releasing adults and started cross-fostering, the population numbers started to rise. They've seen an average annual increase of 14% in the population since 2009. We've got a successful program going, and each year we document new records in the number of wolves, the number of adult wolves, the number of puppies born. The other big news coming out of the updated recovery plan is that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service supposedly got rid of the population cap. At least, that's what you heard if you read most media reports. The Associated Press, for example, claimed that the population cap had been eliminated. The Center for Biological Diversity took a victory lap at this news and claimed that the planned massacre had been avoided. The reality is less hyperbolic. Prior to having an updated recovery plan, the rules governing recovery set a limit of 325 wolves on the landscape. It was technically a population cap, but no one was planning to start shooting wolves once they reached it. And they put that in at the time, knowing that when the recovery plan is published, we'll come back and fix that number with whatever the scientists came up with. The new goal is a 320-wolf minimum average over eight years, among other criteria. Once they exceed that goal, along with other goals related to the number of cross-fostered pups, the Mexican gray wolves will be considered safe from extinction. At that point, Mexican wolves will be recovered in the U.S., 
And if a second population in Mexico achieves their goals, agencies will begin the process of taking Mexican wolves off the endangered species list. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service hopes they'll reach that goal by 2028, but at this point, that looks unlikely. I know I haven't touched on the elephant in the room, how the Mexican gray wolf reintroduction will affect hunters and game populations. That's a conversation for another day, and I think I've already talked your ear off on this topic. I will say this, if we count ourselves as hunter conservationists, we should be open to all efforts to conserve wild species, not just the ones we want to hunt. That will help ensure continued support for hunters among the general population and make sure we stay consistent with our values. The Mexican gray wolf's conservation story is fascinating. I love digging into it. I gotta say one more thing. There is nothing that we do as hunter conservationists in regards to habitat that only benefits one species. If we were to do that, we'd be talking about high fence situations. We wouldn't be talking about the amazing uncertainty and diversity of nature. That diversity is what supports all forms of wildlife. If you're solely focused on whitetail, the thing that makes whitetails big and awesome is a huge diversity of plant species and covers. Those plant species and covers host a variety of wildlife that you will need to help proliferate alongside your big racked whitetail bucks. That's how nature works. To that point, you should be invested in wolf recovery. It's super cool stuff. I'll tell you, as a longtime elk hunter here in Montana and Idaho, I've been through it all when it comes to wolves. I've seen plenty. I've heard plenty. I've been around plenty. And I still put a lot of elk steaks in the freezer. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. You've heard that name before because I've talked about them here on this podcast. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. Now, it's wild axis deer, which is an invasive species, but this operation is monitored and observed 
by the USDA, and they can commercially sell axis deer. Last time I went out to uh, Maui to hunt axis, I did not kill one, which is where Maui Nui Venison would come in very handy for folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful and still want to have something in the freezer or uh, handy in the form of a snack stick that is as close to getting your own as you can get, which is what Maui Nui Venison is. You can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, venison.com, and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. Moving on. Legislative sessions are over in most states, but that doesn't mean it's time to relax. Fish and game commissions are still considering new rules and policies, and we've got to make sure our voices are heard. In South Dakota, big cock country, there's a big debate brewing between folks who like to target pen-raised pheasants at shooting preserves and those who like to, uh, you know, go hunt the wild ones. South Dakota Public Broadcasting published a great article outlining the controversy, but I'll give you the spark notes. Pen-raised pheasants are bred on a farm and sold to shooting preserves who guarantee that their patrons will have a successful hunt. I get the business model, but some South Dakotans are concerned that growing trends towards shooting preserves is harming the wild, native populations of birds already on the landscape. The South Dakota Department of Game and Fish stopped counting the pheasant population in 2019 as part of a larger effort by the Tourism Department to attract more hunters to the state. They didn't want to discourage hunters from coming to South Dakota with the reports of diminishing pheasant population, and they encouraged these shooting preserves to attract tourists looking for an easy hunt. The state is still managing and trying to expand pheasant habitat, and shooting preserves argue that they're helping the population by putting more birds on the landscape. Of course, if you listen to the podcast or have even a little common sense, you know that pen-raised birds have incredibly low survival rates in the wild. That being said, if you put enough of them out in good habitat and you're doing predator control work at the same time, those rates increase and some birds can survive. This just comes at great cost compared to creating great habitat for already wild birds. If this is a topic that interests you, get in touch with South Dakota Game and Fish or contact the office of South Dakota Governor Christy Noem and let the governor know where you like to spend your money and what type of pheasants you like to chase. Over in Virginia, private property owners have launched a lawsuit against hound hunters. Virginia law allows hunters who hunt with dogs to retrieve their dogs from private property even if the property is posted with no trespassing signs or the owner has denied access. The law prohibits all hunters except fox and coon hunters from bringing firearms or bows onto the property, and the lawsuit doesn't claim that hunters are actually killing animals without permission. But landowners argue in the lawsuit that the law amounts to a violation of the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. That amendment stipulates that private property cannot be taken for public use without just compensation. They claim, by forcing landowners to allow dogs and hunters on their property, Virginia's law does exactly that, according to this lawsuit. We'll come back to this issue in future episodes, but I've spoken with hound hunters in Virginia who say that most hunters ask for permission already before retrieving their dogs. It's also worth noting that the lawsuit itself describes only a few specific instances when dogs were destructive. Several of the specific examples cited are simply hunters entering property without asking, retrieving their dogs, and leaving. 
not exactly brazen acts of property destruction or a real justification for overturning the law. This type of situation makes me wonder how many of these overreaching government laws that only go back to disputes between bad neighbors. Let's do some work on the ground on being a good neighbor. In Wyoming, the state's Game and Fish Commission has decided to cut pronghorn licenses by 8,000 and mule deer tags by 3,300. The Wyoming Game and Fish Department recommended the change in light of the drought that will limit future shrub growth. The opportunity to comment on that rule has passed, but Wyomingites can still weigh in on how the state will manage an overpopulation of elk, especially on private land. The Game and Fish Department is trying to figure out how to issue hunting licenses to dislodge elk from ranchland refuges. Get in touch with your local Game and Fish office and let them know what you think. In California, legislators have resurrected a bill that would impose a 10-11% to state sales tax on all firearms and ammunition. This bill failed to advance in 2021, but supporters used what's called a gut and amend procedure to insert the language of this bill into another bill. That 10-11% to sales tax wouldn't be going to conservation or the state fish and game agency. State lawmakers want to take that money and use it to combat violent crime, though it's unclear exactly how. If you'd like to weigh in, contact your California lawmakers and tell them what you think about AB 1227. In Rhode Island, the House of Representatives is about to consider a bill that would clarify the rules that govern public access to the shoreline. The current precedent set by the state Supreme Court says that the public can access the shoreline along private property up to the mean high tide line. But because no one knows exactly where the mean high tide line is located, that standard has done nothing but cause confusion and pay the salaries of expensive lawyers. I won't get into it here, but a minor pop music star named Taylor Swift has found herself caught in this controversy. You can look that one up for yourself, probably when you're on the toilet. Nothing against T. Swift, but, you know, bigger fish to fry. Rhode Island Bill, H8055A, aims to fix this mess by setting the boundary to public access at six feet inland, the clearly observable seaweed line, so long as passable natural shoreline exists. If you live in Rhode Island, get in touch with your duly elected in the state legislature about H8055A. This bill is guaranteed, if passed, to lose public access to public shoreline. In North Carolina, state legislators are trying to repeal a Wildlife Resource Commission decision that will permit bear hunting on three bear management units. If you recall from episode 159, legislators had the option to introduce the anti-bear hunting bill after they received more than 10 letters opposing the new rule. If the legislature passes the bill, they will be overriding the Wildlife Resource Commission decision and reducing bear hunting opportunities in the state. If you live in the Tar Heel State, get in touch with your representatives and voice your opposition to House Bill 1072. That's HB 1072. Finally, over at the federal desk, the Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, is proposing new rules that would protect the Bristol Bay watershed in Alaska. The new rule would finalize permanent protections under the Clean Water Act and effectively end the possibility of the infamous pebble mine. The Biden administration is arguing that the mine's construction and operation would result in waste discharges into the water, which would result in a loss of fish habitat. The public comment period is open until July 5, 
and backcountry hunters and anglers is collecting petition signatures under the Take Action button on their website. Please go do both. Public comments are counted. Make some phone calls as well. This is a big deal. Moving on to your real call to action. All right, everybody buckle up and pay attention. I know I started off the episode by making fun of Georgia slightly, but now we're in resurrection mode, okay? If you've been following Cal's Week in Review, you know that we're currently accepting submissions for our land access initiative. We're looking for a parcel of land or an easement that we can purchase to permanently secure public access to hunting and fishing and other outdoor recreation. I recently learned about a piece of land in Georgia that would be an ideal candidate if we can raise $1 billion. Thanks to Billy Hames and Graham Hawley for bringing this to my attention. The Pine Log Wildlife Management Area is a short one-hour drive north of Atlanta. It's a 14,000-acre property that outdoor enthusiasts have used for many years to hunt, fish, camp, hike, and horseback ride. To have such a large plot of public land so close to a major city is unique, especially in an eastern state without the massive tracts of public land we have here out west. Here's the problem. The state doesn't actually own the land. It's been leased to the state by the Aubrey Corporation, and they just put the property up for sale. Now, it's anyone's guess what will happen to the land. The Rome News Tribune reports that the property could be used for anything from residential development to industrial warehousing to agriculture to mining. The continued expansion north of Atlanta and the growth that the area has experienced over the past five years made it a logical decision to exit monolithically said Robert Neal, manager member of the Aubrey Corporation. I'm not fluent in corporate ease, but I think I can roughly translate that statement. Basically, the greater Atlanta area is expanding north along Interstate 75, and the Aubrey Corporation knows it's sitting on a gold mine, like the Beverly Hillbillies, but with hunting and fishing land instead of oil. The company is trying to sell the total 19,000-acre plot for over $1 billion, which, if my math is correct, is about $50,000 an acre, I reached out to the Georgia DNR, and they said, in an email, that they're working hard to investigate all opportunities to provide public recreational access on this property into the future. I hope they're successful. If not, Georgians are set to lose some great hunting and fishing land. Billy Joe Hames and his brother Robert have been hunting dove, turkey, whitetail, and ducks on this property for about 15 years. They told me that losing access would force them to drive another half an hour to another smaller WMA. It would also increase traffic on those other WMAs as Hotlanta residents look to get into the outdoors. Barring some kind of a miracle, I don't think the Land Access Initiative is going to raise $1 billion in the next few months. Jeff Bezos, if you're listening, give me a call. But there are lots of properties like the Pine Log WMA out there. The public is at risk of losing access. We got to be proactive. Hunters and conservationists, step up, do something about it. If you're in Georgia, reach out to your duly elected and the DNR. Let them know how important these open spaces are to you. I'm not sure what they'll be able to do about a private land sale, but I do know there's a heck of a lot of money in Georgia. There's a possibility of figuring it out. And keep in mind how serious this situation is. Again, These folks, Billy Joe Hames and his brother Robert, just told you, everyone, where they like to hunt and fish because it's so important for them to maintain access, not just for them, but for everybody. In the hunting and angling world, that's a crisis. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. 
And remember, if you're in need of a clean, quiet, battery-operated chainsaw, something to throw underneath your truck seat but still do real work with, go to www.steeldealers.com and find a local, knowledgeable steel dealer near you. They're going to get you set up with what you need, and they won't try to send you home with what you don't. And last but not least, let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods by writing in to A-S-K-C-A-L, that's AskCal, at TheMeatEater.com. Thanks again. I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and burnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.